I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. They were stories that jolted the U.S. intelligence community and created an international uproar. An NSA contractor had stolen a huge cache of highly classified documents, revealing stunning details about the reach of the agency's surveillance. The NSA was scooping up the records of phone calls made by millions of American citizens and secretly intercepting emails and other communications by tapping into the servers of big U.S. Internet companies like Google and Yahoo. The contractor, of course, was Edward Snowden who ever since those stories broke in 2013, has been a fugitive from U.S. justice, living in exile in Moscow, courtesy of Vladimir Putin's government. Now, one of the original reporters who got that document dump, Bart Gelman, has written a new book, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State, that recounts the behind the scenes story of his own extensive dealings with the self-styled whistleblower. We'll talk to Gelman and get his take on the still reverberating impact of Snowden's disclosures on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. We now have with us uh, our old colleague from the Washington Post, Bart Gelman. Bart, welcome to the podcast. I've been listening since the start, so I'm really glad to be here. (laughs) Well, we've been reading you for many, many years. And congrats on the book. And I just wanted to sort of start out. There's so much to talk about here, about Snowden, about the impact of his disclosures, about how they look today versus how we looked at them at the time. But just to sort of set the scene, tell us how you first learned about the existence of the Snowden documents and how you came to obtain them. So Snowden went to the filmmaker Laura Poitras, and he was attracted to her because she had done civil liberties-minded films before, and she was also the subject of searches every time she crossed the U.S. border. They would copy her film, image her computer, hold her for secondary detention. So he said, Aha, she's a victim of the surveillance state, and, and, she, and he picked her. She came to me very quickly because I'd written a book about Dick Cheney that covered surveillance. She wanted some advice. Did I think this guy was for real? All we knew that it was someone who called himself Virax for truth teller, that he claimed to be from the intelligence community, and that he had a scandal that would rock the world. That's not normally something that will... Uh, induce a lot of confidence in me. Uh, You guys have both been in this business long enough to know how many spooky conspiracies you get in in your uh, inbox. But he gradually, over time, convinced us that he was for real. 
And you publish your first story in June of 2013, after The Guardian first published. And at that point, you still have not met Snowden in person. You've communicated with him through um, all sorts of um, surreptitious means. But you fly to Moscow in December 2013, and you meet him for the first time. And I just love the account of uh, your encounter with him in which a paranoia seems to be reigning supreme on his part and your part. Tell us a little bit about that first encounter, starting off with when you have the discussion about milkshakes. (laughs) Well, just when I got there, he called my hotel phone and said, what time does your watch say exactly? And I told him. And he said, at exactly 4 p.m., we'll meet in the lobby of the Corston Hotel, which is this gaudy gaudy, uh, casino hotel, and we'll be by the player piano. So I said, okay. And the guy comes up to me, and he's in light disguise because he did not want to be sort of followed around by reporters, I think. He didn't fool himself. He could evade government scrutiny. But uh, he looked a little different than usual. He was carrying a backpack with the zipper flap open so that he could reach back into it and eject the CD that was running, if anybody came up to him, and brought me up to a room. Kept the curtains closed, never emerged for seven hours the first day. And I asked him personal questions he didn't want to answer. He wanted the story always to be about the disclosures, not about him. So some of it was just by disposition. But he also was quite uh, – <laughs> he had a huge focus on operational security. So, for example, when he went to the bathroom, he carried his laptop with him. He didn't trust the laptop in my hands unobserved for two minutes. And so he carried it with him. But I kind of laughed at him. And he said, well, it may seem excessive, but you realize it's not that hard, and if it can make you more secure, then then you do it. I, I asked him what he missed about America, and he said, not much, really. He, he's easy to please. He doesn't have many demands, although when I pressed him, he finally said, well, I, you know, I miss milkshakes. I said, milkshakes? That's easy. Why don't you just get a blender? And he refused to confirm or deny possession of a blender because... If American spy agencies knew whether he had a blender, they could look for apartments that had that electrical signature, which he said is not that common in Moscow, and help pinpoint his uh, location that way. Now, I thought that was going pretty far. Uh, He wasn't wrong, though, about the capability. So, Bart, at this point, you are already on a kind of descent into what people from the outside would, I think, look at as paranoia. And I want to point to the, you know, kind of the the high point of that or the low point, however you see it, which is this extraordinary moment when you're with your partner and seven-year-old boy outside of Disney World at the Disney World gates, and you balk there because they want to scan your fingerprint and get you to wear a a radio-tagged wristband. So tell us about how you got to that point where you were questioning whether you could even go take your son to Disney World. I freely confess that I lost all sense of balance from this. Uh, Now, in fairness, it's not paranoid if someone is actually out to get you. And, you know, I mean, I had lots of reason to think that. But I, nothing felt safe to me. 
And I spent all my time thinking about attack surfaces, uh, as they say in the trade, uh, what, what vulnerabilities I was leaving it, and then to wear an RF-tagged wristband everywhere I went and have, the, have readers pointing at me and uh, giving somebody my fingerprint. I mean, I wouldn't have liked especially handing out my fingerprint to some private corporation just for privacy reasons anyway. It's like my, my kid's summer camp one year said, can you send us scans of your child's face so we can use facial recognition software to identify him in uh, all the pictures we take at camp? And you know, I said, no thanks. So I'm disposed that way anyway. And there was just that one moment where they say, fingerprint, please. And I stopped for a second, and I met Daphne's eyes, and she just about dared me <laughs> to say no. And of course, who wouldn't cave in with a seven-year-old waiting eagerly to walk into Disney World? So I did. <laughs> so you do have a breaking point, uh, we now know. <laughs> it's, my, it's my, Mickey Mouse is my vulnerability. Right. But you discover in the course of uh, writing this book that you were targeted by the U.S. government in some pretty extensive ways. Tell us about that. I was targeted both by the U.S. government and by foreign governments and probably by run-of-the-mill hackers who thought it would be fun or interesting to see the Snowden documents uncensored. I mean, think about it. I had put a giant target on my back. I had announced to the world in my stories and in interviews about my stories that I had a giant pile of highly sensitive, highly classified documents from the NSA that I was not intending to make them publicly available en masse, that I was going to write stories about them from time to time as I thought they were newsworthy and not too damaging. And so I'm saying, I have this great big pile of goodies. Come and get it, honestly. Uh, there was, I, I had no choice but to say so, I thought, to be honest and to follow the news. But I knew it made me a target. So I found out later through sources and, and to some extent through freedom of information requests that the U.S. government was, I don't know whether I was a target or a subject of surveillance. It could have been simply in the course of investigations into Snowden, but they said investigations, plural. So it wasn't just Snowden. It was probably other stories I had done as a national security reporter over the years. Uh, I found my own name in the documents that Snowden had given me, uh, documents that long predated my connection to Snowden uh, as the author of several stories that were considered breaches of secrecy of high-level concern to policymakers. Uh, and that launched FBI investigations. The FBI refused to turn over certain documents in court because it said that disclosing even the names of the documents uh, that included the word Gelman in them would reveal the existence of special surveillance methods that were not public. So I was apparently the beneficiary of special surveillance methods that were not public, uh, uh, which was not reassuring. Uh, and then, then I, I, I knew from an official warning from Google and from a uh, forensic exam of my devices that there were foreign intelligence services uh, trying to get into my work. My iPad rebooted itself and switched into a Unix terminal and started dumping the operating system and loading a new kernel in front of my eyes one day which, if it had happened not in front of my eyes, would have left we, me with an iPad that looked normal but would no longer be working for me. That's the tip of the iceberg. Bart, tell the story about your colleague who you shared bylines with who 
believe that he was potentially the, the target of a honey trap. I thought that was one of the more astonishing stories about that period when you and and your colleague were under surveillance. I guess you didn't prove it in that case, but tell that story. Right. It's just unsubtle <laughs> and suggestive. I mean, you read about honey traps in spy novels or in, in uh, accounts of old operations, the use of sexual lures to gather intelligence. So uh, my friend Ashkan, Ashkan Sultani, who's a security and privacy expert who was working with me on the documents, is a single guy, and he's on OkCupid to find a match. OkCupid is not a hookup site. It's not a uh, swipe right, let's go meet and get in bed kind of site. It's, it's for serious daters. And he'd been on it for years. And for the first time in his life, and then the second time, and then the third time, all in a compressed period of time, very attractive young women were messaging him and proposing they get together, which, first of all, is not usually the way it works on OkCupid. It's usually the men asking the women. And second of all, he said they just were really, really hot women. And they immediately started suggesting that they would be happy to wind up in bed with him. Well, one of them said on the day they were supposed to meet, uh, it's uh, cloudy outside, uh, bad weather, it makes me want to cuddle. Why don't I come over to your place? And he said, this has got to be. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a bad looking guy. Uh, I do okay. But uh, I'm not usually the guy that people say they want to come cuddle with before they've even met me. Now, on the question of the U.S. government targeting you, which is something I think all journalists uh, would be concerned about, you reveal something called First Fruits, which I gather is some sort of program that targets journalists who are suspected of uh, getting unauthorized leaks from the government. And one detail in particular that leapt out at me is you found, you discovered, I guess through FOIA, a document that included a 76-page Homeland Security report on every international flight you'd taken since 1983. That astounded me. Tell us about First Fruits and tell us about that document. So I had actually heard the term First Fruits long before I met Snowden and long before I saw these documents. It was the subject of kind of feverish speculation in the kind of crazy conspiracy um, internet. It was described as a program that targeted journalists and also uh, political officials for assassination, for example, which it turns out <laughs> that is not what it was. But I, and I thought First Fruits was all just made up nonsense because of the way it was treated. But there really was a classified compartment under top secret seal uh, at the NSA for a program called First Fruits, which was to, to track and discourage and defend against leaks to journalists um, as being what they call cryptologic insecurities, which means that you uh, create you create the risk that uh, an intelligence gathering method by the NSA will no longer work. And I learned from that that the director of the NSA had sent a memo to the attorney general, John Ashcroft, back in 1999 saying, please investigate Gelman for these three stories that he's done, uh, we uh, they're serious, they're severe leaks of intelligence methods, uh, and we we want like a criminal investigation. 
Bart, just to ask a question quickly here. Yeah. They said investigate Gelman, not investigate Gelman sources. No, I mean, I'm, I'm being, I'm being uh, figurative here. It, it said, this, here's, here's a list of leaks of high-level concern uh, for which we would like to make a criminal referral. And in fact, that is an investigation of the sources, but it also entails, because it uses counterintelligence powers, it entails the possibility that they're going to use FISA warrants right. uh, at national security letters and other intelligence methods to try to determine my sources. Right. You can't investigate the source without investigate the journalist. The question is, the source would have been the target of the investigation, not the journalist. Well, that's right. Up, in, up until... Very recently, and we can talk about this if you want, uh, the U.S. government has never yeah. tried to charge yeah, yeah. a journalist with espionage for publishing a classified fact. And at that time, that was not a prosecutorial direction that they were likely to take. So, yeah, they were, they were investigating my sources, which has the effect of deterring it. Of course, in the Snowden matter, they knew who your source was already. <laughs> it was Snowden. They didn't have to find out who your source was. Right, but they were using, uh, I'm sure, a significant amount of surveillance resources to try to figure out uh, when we talked, how we talked, what we said that I didn't publish, what else I had that I hadn't published, uh, and so on. But also, I mean, on this very point, I mean, you do a good job in this book of going back to the people who were looking to investigate enforce the laws, uh, prosecute people who are leaking. And, and one of them is James Clapper, who was the head of the DNI, that he was the director of national intelligence when the Snowden documents leaked. And he told you that uh, he believed you, you were a valid target of uh, counterintelligence and potentially law enforcement. Yeah, that was a disturbing conversation because it was in many ways a very friendly conversation. One of the things I do in Dark Mirror is I set the scene and I, sh and I described the moments in which I tracked down senior members of the national security establishment and talked them through what happened. And sometimes they say surprising and interesting things, and sometimes they stand by the stories they told in the past. Clapper had really disturbed me during the Snowden uh, public debate. He described me and the other journalists as accomplices to Snowden. So Snowden was charged with espionage. Uh, to be an accomplice to espionage is a legal term which exposes you to uh, significant criminal penalties. And that was not an off-the-cuff remark. It was in his prepared testimony that had been vetted around the administration. And then shortly after that, the, the following month, the inspector general of the NSA called me an agent of Snowden. This was not normal talk about journalists doing a story. And it worried me about what the consequences were. And I, I later found out that the NSA director, Keith Alexander, was advocating internally that the U.S. government uh, stage raids on the journalists and seize our documents and our notes to prevent us from making further disclosures. Let's talk big picture here. Snowden remains a polarizing figure for many. Uh, he has portrayed himself as a whistleblower trying to shed light on intrusive surveillance practices of the United States government, but he lives a fugitive from justice at the sufferance of uh, Vladimir Putin in um, one of the most authoritarian countries in the world. You write in the book, you acknowledge something that Snowden does not, that some of his disclosures may well have harmed 
legitimate national security interests of the United States. But you conclude that his disclosures did significantly more good than harm. Tell us how you reach that conclusion. So there's obviously two sides of that. There, there's a fundamental tension between self-government and self-defense. If you do everything for security, um, that might incline you to keep everything secret. In fact, if you read the Espionage Act, it bans discussion of anything that's called national defense information, whether or not it's classified, uh, meaning, you know, <laughs> the Army has eight active divisions and a division consists of several brigades and so on. That's national defense information. If you, if you wanted perfect security, you might, although I think you'd be wrong, you might be inclined to perfect secrecy. If you want perfect democracy, then you want to know everything. You want to be able to judge for yourself what the government is doing. So these, these are intention. What good did he do? He enabled us to have a public debate that would not have happened otherwise about what the boundaries of intelligence in a free society are supposed to be. He told us that we were being surveilled by our own government in ways that the government did not admit and sometimes actively denied. And it caused people to change their behavior. It caused people to change their behavior in a way that the model suggests is the right model, the, the, the way we're supposed to. If you, if you see something you don't like as a citizen, you can put pressure on your representatives um, or members of Congress can change, can change the law. If you see something you don't like as a consumer, you can demand more privacy from the big internet companies. And both those things happen. So what was the harm? The, there must have been harm to collection based on technical secrets being spilled so that people who would otherwise be caught unawares by some channel or another of surveillance stopped using it. That happens all the time anyway, with or without leaks, uh, because Facebook changes a protocol or Google shifts data centers or people naturally start using this app instead of that app and productive uh, surveillance stops. But I think the greatest damage to intelligence gathering is the part you can't call disqualifying harm in a democratic society, which is what I was saying before. People didn't like that Google was cooperating with the NSA and they demanded more privacy and Google started encrypting its connections. Congress told the NSA that some of what it was doing, it was no longer allowed to do. These caused losses of co collection, no doubt, but that's a, a feature, not a bug. Bart, I want to ask you a little bit about the laws that are currently on the book to deal with uh, the, the, the tension that you talked about. And, and they're not, they don't fit these scenarios particularly well. You point out that there is no law that kind of squarely deals with criminal law, that squarely uh, deals with um, unauthorized uh, disclosures. And so therefore, uh, the government has turned to the Espionage Act, which is a pretty blunt instrument. It really is about spying. It means that it suggests that reporters can be spies. So talk about that a little bit. And, and I wonder, uh, as you've been kind of grappling with uh, this tension between secrecy and national security interests and, and journalism, what could the government do to resolve that tension, you know, in terms of how to enforce the law when things are leaked uh, that they believe you know, could be a real damage to our, our national security. Right. So a couple of premises that'll be familiar to your listeners, I think. One is that you can't have news coverage of 
the intelligence or foreign policy or defense or many other things without talking about secrets. Almost everything you want to know as a reader of those stories about how's the war going or what are relations like with this country or that country or what might Iran do after the U.S. government assassinates uh, one of its top leaders, all that stuff is classified. And if we took the government's word for it about what should stay secret, then we would never have had stories about, uh, about rendition in the war on terrorism or torture or unlawful domestic surveillance or abusive prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. Those were all classified. And they should not have been kept out of the public debate. Sometimes people classify things for bad reasons or because they can or because they're used to it. So government has always been able to do more. Since we don't have an official Secrets Act, the legal rubric was that if you are in government or a contractor, and if you lawfully obtain classified information because you have a clearance, and then you give that information to someone not authorized, including a reporter, then you're a spy. Then you can be charged with espionage. That's a kind of a grotesque distortion of the transaction. A spy tries to give information that stays secret to a hostile government um, for the purpose of harming the United States. A source to a, you know, someone like Isakov or someone like Clydman is trying to bring things to the public sphere, not to keep the, the, the leak a secret. Um, they're trying to achieve results in their own society. They're trying to enter the, the political uh, arena and to tell citizens things that they think the citizens need to know. They're not trying to harm the United States government. So it's distorted to put this all through the lens of espionage, and even more so if you want to say that the reporter is a spy. And that's the final step that the Trump administration is trying to cross. A few years ago, the House Intelligence Committee did something that seems inconceivable from today's perspective. It produced a bipartisan report about Snowden and his leaks, in which they concluded he was, quote, a serial fabricator and exaggerator. And here's what Adam Schiff, the ranking, then the ranking Democrat on the committee, said at the time, quote, Snowden and his defenders claim that he is a whistleblower, but he isn't. Most of the material he stole had nothing to do with Americans' privacy, and its compromise has been of great value to America's adversaries and those who mean to do America harm. Was he wrong? I think that that whole report was deeply flawed, and some of it really obvious on a simple level. They called him a serial fabricator, and here are two examples of his fabrication. They said he called himself a high-level CIS uh, administrator when he was actually just a high school dropout. So they knew that he had the top tier of system of sysadmin clearance. They knew that he had CIA clearances as well as NSA clearances. They knew that he had gotten his GED and had taken advanced networking and other kinds of courses. I mean, he was, that whatever else he is, he's not an uneducated dummy. He's actually just by raw intelligence, one of the smartest people I've ever met. They claimed that he had washed out of the army and made up claims that he was injured. Well, <laughs> I mean, I saw the medical report. He broke both legs. So, I mean, but on the, on the bigger issue, and I'm glad you brought it up, a lot of Snowden critics say that most of what he revealed and most of what reporters wrote about had nothing to do with American privacy. It was all about overseas legitimate operations. 
And here's the problem with that. And I spent most of my reporting time on these issues. Anything that you pick up overseas is no longer foreign intelligence. It used to be you could assume that if you tapped into a cable in Geneva or in Singapore, that you were getting foreigners. But that's not the way the internet operates anymore. It does not respect geographic boundaries at all. If Isakov sends a note to Clydeman, it is quite possible that that is going to travel by way of Bogota. And even if it doesn't, it's going to end up at a data center there because all the great big providers have a whole global infrastructure that balances the load on the internet and that and that backs things up, which is to say that everything in your Gmail account is right now in multiple foreign countries. And if the NSA, as it does, breaks into the Google Cloud, which is to say, I mean, it was one of my biggest stories and one of the ones that I think is most significant, that the NSA was tapping into the private fiber optic cables that link a Google data center in one country to another. Uh, they don't travel over the regular internet. It's, it's thousands of miles of privately owned cable that Google uses to connect these things. If you tap into that, you're going to get hundreds of millions of American accounts. You're going to get an enormous amount of American data, and that's called, under the law of intelligence, that's called incidental collection. But incidental doesn't mean accidental or unforeseen or unwanted. It just means that they know when they aim, when they, when they grab a whole pipeline and they do a, a high volume, full take collection on one of the major pipelines of the internet, they know they're going to get a lot of Americans in there. And although they're not allowed to target you or me without a warrant, they're not allowed to target us for collection. If they happen to use a giant net and scoop us in, they're free to use that information in some circumstances. So basically, the foreign thing, it hugely affects American privacy, what they're doing overseas. Yeah. And I'm curious, Bart, this is something that Isikoff and I were talking about before. If you are a just an average American citizen, you're not a national security reporter like Bart Gelman or, or Mike Isikoff, who do you have to fear most or more in terms of your privacy, the intelligence community or a social media platform or a technology company or other private American company that um, is going to, you know, is collecting your data all the time and sharing your data. I recognize it's not a zero sum game, but, you know, most Americans, I'm sure, do not walk around worrying about the government invading their privacy. But I think they do worry about the private companies doing that. So how do you think about that? So that's, an, that's, that's a really good question. I think, first of all, why choose? You could be worried about both for different right. reasons. The uses that private companies can put to your data mostly involve selling you things, but they can also be used to uh, discriminate, to gouge you on pricing, to um, deny you health insurance or life insurance. Or sell to political actors like Cambridge Analytica so they can manipulate the American public. Right. I mean, but once you know... Uh, I mean, the, the people who tell me that they've got nothing to hide from the government don't tend to be willing to give me the keys to their email accounts. Like, nobody actually has nothing to hide. I think that's literally nobody. I, I tell people, even if you think you have no secrets, you're, also, you're the keeper of other people's secrets. Somebody has told you that he hates his boss and is going to quit his job. Somebody's told you that, that, that she's going to leave her husband. Somebody's told you that uh, they have this fantastic new secret idea for 
a product they're going to sell in the marketplace. You don't have the right to make yourself an open book if you're also opening uh, the lives of other people. I think fundamentally that the government is not, it's not the Stasi, it's not a police state, it's not motivated by evil, but it is collecting so much information, it has so much potential power over citizens, uh, and is so secretive about it. I mean, that's why I called my book Dark Mirror. The image is of a uh, police interrogation room where you can see through one side and stare at the people inside, but they can't see you looking at them at all. So we are transparent. We're all in that interrogation room in this country, even though we've done nothing wrong. Um, We're transparent to our government. Our government is opaque to us, and that creates distortions in the balance of power. I want to get back to Snowden for a moment, because you defended him on some of the criticisms or attacks on him in that House Intelligence Committee report. But there are other instances of comments uh, he's made and statements he's made that have given some of us pause to wonder how reliable a narrator he is about what he did and why he did it. And I want to give you some examples and have you talk about them. He said at one point that the breaking point for him to uh, disclose the NSA secrets was uh, James Clapper's false testimony to Congress that the NSA was not collecting data on individual Americans. In fact, Snowden had been downloading the documents uh, for more than a year before that and had contacted Laura Poitras, reached out to her months before Clapper's testimony. He has said he sent emails to up to 10 NSA colleagues and superiors when he worked there raising concerns about U.S. surveillance. None of those emails have ever surfaced. He apparently didn't keep any copies of these emails, even though he stole hundreds of thousands, if not millions of documents. That seems strange to some of us. But one that I think is perhaps the most important uh, is he has said repeatedly that he only gave the documents to responsible journalists who could vet them and only publish them if they would not do any damage to American national security. But one of his first disclosures after to The Guardian and you, and you don't write about this in the book, is the disclosure to the South China Post while he was in Hong Kong, in which he leaked material identifying NSA targets in China including universities, hospitals, uh, other institutions. And A, this had nothing to do with surveillance of Americans. And B, from today's perspective, knowing everything we know about what the Chinese are up to and how they target us, and even more, how much we would want to know what the Chinese hospitals and officials know right now about the spread of COVID, that seems a pretty damaging disclosure to a foreign newspaper that had nothing to do with protecting the privacy of Americans. So as you guys know, but maybe not all your listeners know, I'm not a Snowden's advocate or representative or spokesman, and I'm not 100% in his camp. I I criticize him in the book uh, on a number of counts. I, I have no defense of the South China Morning Post story. I don't Snowden's view was that he was showing that even universities and hospitals, uh, that is to say not defense facilities or foreign ministers, were a target. I would not have published that story because uh, I don't publish stories that warn specific 
foreign targets of legitimate, you know, sort of foreign adversaries that they're being spied on. The Clapper thing, I called him on that myself. Uh, his response is, that is to say, I knew he had been downloading uh, without authority. He, he had been taking documents for some time before the Clapper hearing that he's describing. And I knew that he'd already been in contact with Laura Poitras. And he said that was true, but he still hadn't committed himself. He hadn't given any document to anyone. Uh, that strikes me as weak. What was the third example? Uh, the third example is he has claimed that he sent emails uh, raising concerns about uh, surveillance practices. You might be mixing that one up a little bit. He had he claimed that he had sent emails to the office, the general counsel, about objections he had to uh, one of the training modules that seemed to, to him to suggest that the NSA saw presidential executive orders as superior to congressional legislation. And it turned out that those were conversations he had, and he didn't take them as far as he thought he did. Uh, he has claimed that he talked to a number of colleagues in informal conversations and that they were also disturbed by some of the things he was disturbed by. That I, I, I don't actually especially doubt. I think that if you're in the NSA and there's a giant... I mean, it's really truly enormous uh, investigation going on about who knew what when to admit that you had had conversations in which Snowden told you about his objections to surveillance programs and you didn't happen to volunteer that to anyone. You know, that would be understandable. I'm not sure that the NSA has a full record of everything that Snowden said to somebody uh, who's a work colleague. So, Bart, I mean, you know Snowden. You've thought a lot about him. You've written a lot about him. I guess I, I'm not asking you to put him on the couch, but how do you account for the these things that, that he's done? I mean, does it come out of a, a some sort, sort of zealotry on his part? Does he have blind spots? Um, what What is it that would uh, lead him to, to do these things that seem inconsistent with how he has talked about the role he's played in all of this? Yeah, I love this question because it fascinates me. Why do people like Snowden and are there very many of them, do what they do. Let's say I come to work for Yahoo News, and I decide uh, this guy Clydeman, he's a tyrant. It's really, you know, I, I, I don't like I could I have told like you that doing. before you come, yeah, yeah. right? Don't give, anybody, don't give anybody any ideas here, Bart. Okay, but I, I, I'm with you. Keep going. I'm not saying I heard this directly from Isakoff. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know. Sources close to Isakoff. Sources close, <laughs> yeah. sources close to Isakoff. I, I, I'm troubled by things I see going on in the operation. I'm out of sympathy with the whole thing. You know, most people are going to just go along and get along because they need the job, and they figure if everyone else is doing this, you know, I guess I'm supposed to do it too. Some people would demur and sort of try not to do the things that they were bothered by. Some people would quit or ask for a transfer. Hardly anybody says, I'm going to bring this guy down. I'm going to bring this whole operation down to a halt. I'm going to go public. It's it's just a rare thing to do. Um, it requires a supreme confidence in your own sense of right and wrong, which Snowden does have. And it requires a sensibility that, that can't tolerate inaction. So Snowden does not actually think that he has superior understanding of morals and ethics. I think believes that everyone understands what's right and wrong, that everyone can see it the same way he does, that, that people just don't want to look at it closely because it's inconvenient for them. And for the same reason, he feels like if no one else is acting, that doesn't mean I shouldn't act. That means I should. 
that means I have to stand up. One more beat on uh, uh, another issue of controversy, which is how he came to end up in Moscow. The sort of official Snowden version is uh, he was on his way to Cuba and his passport got revoked and he got stuck in the Moscow airport. Very early on, uh, a Russian newspaper, Commerçant, reported something that U.S. intelligence officials have since told me and others, which is that actually he had gone to the Russian consulate in Hong Kong while he was there to arrange to fly to Moscow. And although it didn't get a lot of attention, Putin himself seemed to confirm that in a September 2013 press conference. He said, he said Snowden first went to Hong Kong and got in touch with our diplomatic representatives. They reported to me that there was this secret service man who wanted to come to Russia. From all the reporting you've done, was he stuck in Moscow and is there by accident, or did he intend to go there, as U.S. intelligence officials firmly believe? I'm going to have to agree to disagree with you on uh, this one, and it's a hard one because uh, we can't sort of show our cards on the table here, Uh, but I spent a lot of time and energy on the question of the question that you're raising here and the question more generally of what were uh, Snowden's relations with the Russian government. And there are a lot of people who seem senior enough that they could know who will tell you things that it turns out are actually just speculation or they've got second or third hand. And I doubt that that Russian consulate meeting ever happened. I know that the people who say that Snowden is cooperating because of course he would be cooperating and you would have to be cooperating to be in Putin's Russia, they're not the ones who have the firsthand information. The ones who have the firsthand information told me that they have no direct evidence that Snowden is cooperating, ever cooperated, or ever wanted to be in Moscow. I've been privy to communications in which Julian Assange and WikiLeaks urged Snowden, begged him to go to Russia. They said, that's the only place you'll be safe. And he said, no, he did not want to do that. He was, he was flying to Moscow with an onward ticket, which I've seen, that would have taken him to Cuba and then to Ecuador. That was where he wanted to go. He did not want to be either in Russia or in Cuba. His passport was, in fact, revoked while he was midair, it's possible that it was revoked just before he left Hong Kong, but the Hong Kong authorities decided, let's be rid of him, and decided to overlook it. How do you explain Putin's comments, though, that in which he said Snowden came to met with our diplomatic officials in Hong Kong? I can't explain them. You could, you could come up with all kinds of hypothetical reasons about why he would say that, either in error or um, to uh, leave a false trail or uh, to poke the Americans. I, I don't understand it. But look, I mean, he he doesn't get money from the Russians. He doesn't need money from the Russians. Uh, I know how he supports himself. Uh, he take this example. I'm I'm going to visit him in in, uh, in Moscow in December of 2013. The secrets are still fresh in time. They're still quite valuable. They're contemporary. I've published maybe one percent or less of the documents that I have. I've left many secrets untold. And Snowden says to me, as we're preparing for the trip, do not bring any documents with you. Um, It would not be safe to bring them. Now, of course, I was not going to bring them. If you're an agent working for Moscow or cooperating with the Russian government, you would say, let's talk through some more of these. I've got some great ideas for you. Uh, You know, bring it along and and we'll review them. I mean, of course he would want me to take them with me. 
there are lots of purely circumstantial uh, but persuasive reasons to me to believe that he's that he he just didn't he didn't have that connection and he didn't ever have one. Bart, what do you think is going to happen to Edward Snowden? I mean, we've got an election here. Either Donald Trump is going to be reelected or Joe Biden is going to be president. It doesn't seem likely that either of them would pardon Snowden. No indication that he would come back and uh, you know face his accusers. So what happens? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, my my crystal ball broke on this one. Uh, right now, it seems to me that Putin has pretty good reasons to keep him. That is to say, protecting Snowden puts Putin in the position of being a great defender of international human rights, defending the whistleblower Edward Snowden against the persecution of his government. That's the way he, he casts it, and it's the role he likes to play. It is a nice... It's a nice little tweak to his his rival. Uh, Snowden has also acknowledged to me, I thought it was very interesting, that Putin has reason to protect him because although he is not in fact a Russian agent, he might look that way to other people. If uh, and, and Putin does not want to discourage walk-ins by foreign intelligence officers of other countries. And if he if he sent Snowden back, that would make people worry. Uh, well, I'm thinking of becoming a spy for Russia and defecting and coming over there uh, would make people worry about doing that because look what happened to Snowden. So Snowden says, even though I'm not a spy, he is treating me as though I were so that he doesn't blow chances with somebody else. But fundamentally, look, he could come back at any time. Uh, he is facing indictment. He's a fugitive from U.S. justice. His claim is that the American justice system uh, would not give him a fair trial. It would not let him put on his public interest defense that he'd like to put on. How do you feel about his arguments on this score, whether he should be he should be above the reach of American law enforcement. So he's got two arguments. One is that international law calls for every country to respect any country's grant of political asylum, uh, that his prosecution here would fall under a political pro a prosecution, um, and that once, once Russia makes him an asylee, then that is armor against criminal charges in another country. That's his argument. His argument that he wouldn't get a fair trial is a subjective one, but the facts that he adduces are correct. That is to say, the only element of the crime of espionage, are the only two elements, are that he had authorized access to classified information and that he gave it to someone who wasn't, who didn't have that. He's not allowed to put on a public interest defense. He's Even if literally every single program that Snowden disclosed had subsequently been declared unconstitutional, and a gross breach of American law, even if everything he disclosed was illegal, he would still be guilty of espionage under the terms of the statute right now. It would be so, a violation of the Espionage Act. It would not be guilty of espionage per se. He's not being charged with being a spy. He's being charged with espionage. It's the he's same charge you would use a violation of the Espionage Act. Right. Those are the laws yeah. on the books. Right. What he's right. saying is those laws are unfair. Right. He's saying that if... if if he were allowed to come back and say, yes, this is what I did, I believed it to be in the public interest for the following reason, and that it raised legitimate legal issues and uh, political issues, uh, and let a jury decide that, that doesn't happen to be what the law is. He doesn't get that choice. Nobody does. Who's charged with that? We can decide for yourself what you think of the espionage law as it's currently uh, written and interpreted. But uh, 
It's look, it's asking a lot for a guy to come back and put his head on the block. But I'm not saying he's right legally. Under American law, he's clearly a fugitive uh, from justice. And if he came back, would open and shut be convicted? How long is his asylum good for? I don't think he's yet got a permanent asylum, but I'm not up to date on that. Yeah, I think it's been reported up. The, the asylum grant is up to this year, which raises the question. I mean, I assume, like you do, that it'll be renewed and the Russians have no interest in sending him back. Although I was kind of surprised. I think a lot of people thought when Trump came in that uh, Snowden would be a good gift for the new president uh, that Putin could provide. Um, yet he hasn't done so. Right. Well, I mean, maybe this Trump really just doesn't care. Uh, for one thing. I mean, he has called for the death penalty for Snowden, but he, he could just as easily uh, give him a medal the next week. He doesn't need a precedent means nothing to this president. Uh, uh, and consistency is not one of his hallmarks. Uh, I just don't think he gives a damn, frankly. Right. Well, I, it may be that the, the resolution here, which depending how it plays out, could be bad for Snowden or could be good for Snowden, is whether the politics something changes in Russia that makes Snowden expendable to Putin or some, or the politics change here and you have a, say, a Bernie Sanders-like president who would pardon him. Yeah. Getting pardoned is going to be a very, very uh, <laughs> big lift uh, for any president. Uh, the, the intelligence community, um, the national security community loathe Snowden and yeah. have long memories for this sort of thing. Uh, and... I, I don't think he'll be pardoned in his lifetime. Hey, Bart, what are you, uh, now that you finally finished this long-awaited book, which a lot of us have been waiting for, what are you doing now? Well, I've recently become staff writer at The Atlantic, which I think is a really good fit for me. It's it's filled with fantastic enterprise. They have resources still. They are hungry for deep reporting and deep dives into tough subjects, uh, and uh, they don't think twice if you have the right subject and the right uh, angle on it uh, to allow you to take even months, if that's what it takes to get the story. So I'm uh, going to find something to dive into deeply, uh, and I'll probably do pieces from time to time, uh, shorter term pieces on the website. But I just think they're firing on all cylinders over there, and I'm happy to join. Well, we were happy to have you here. The book is Dark Mirror. It's a great read, and um, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And I will say that having competed against you going all the way back to D.C. Superior Court in the <laughs> 1980s, you're coming back to uh, a, a great magazine like The uh, the Atlantic and getting to do the kind of journalism you've always done is good for journalism, and good for the republic. Uh, I, I didn't even have to pay you to say that. But thank you. <laughs> Congratulations on the book, Bart. Great talking to you. Take care. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks to author and investigative reporter Bart Gelman for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.